0: All right, welcome back to chapter 11. We'll be covering baseline vital signs, monitoring devices, and history taking. Our overview is going to be gathering patient information, taking vital signs, monitoring equipment, preparing to take the history, and taking the history. Your case study introduction, Chuck Mahone rubs his chest, tries to relieve the discomfort he feels there as two EMTs walk toward him. Hi, I'm Bill, says the taller of the two, and this Mm -hmm. is Dawn. We are EMTs and we are here to help. What seems to be the problem today? What information will be important to Bill and Yolanda in deciding what is wrong with Mr. Mahone? What procedures and equipment will the EMTs use to obtain this information? Remember, I encourage you to pause this video, write these questions down, and answer them as we go. Patient assessment is a skill the EMT must provide to every patient. Patient assessment helps you find out what is wrong with the patient and decide what care should be provided. Measuring vital signs over time reveals trends in the patient's condition. Patient history, the patient's history helps you understand their underlying problems. Alright, gathering information. When you arrive at the scene of an emergency call, you must gather information about the patient's condition. Some information is readily available. Other information takes detective work. That is correct. We have to be medical detectives, putting all the clues together, all the evidence together to determine the outcome. Always respect the patient's dignity. Vital signs are the outward clues about what is happening in the body. and They include respirations, pulse, skin, pupils, blood pressure, and the pulse oximetry. Baseline vitals are the first set of measurements taken. Later findings are compared to the baseline to detect trends. Some vital signs are detected by looking, listening, and feeling. Other vital signs are measured using special equipment. The respiratory rate. For adults the range is 12 to 20 breaths per minute. Respiratory rates that are less than 8 or greater than 24 are of concern. Interpret findings based on the patient's overall presentation. You can assess the breathing if the patient is unresponsive. If you can't see the chest rise and fall, you can place your hand on the chest. Respiratory rate, quality, and rhythm. Normal respiratory rates. You can look at this chart, but you can see at the younger the patient, the higher the respiratory rate per minute. It is normal. These are normal respiratory rates. So when you assess an infant or a toddler and they're breathing really fast, um, then don't freak out because remember they have higher respiratory rates. If you ever want to hyperventilate yourself, try to keep up with an infant. I guarantee you you can't. Ventilate an adult patient breathing at a rate of greater than 40 per minute or an infant or young child breathing at a rate greater than 60 per minute. Ventilate, that means bag, valve, mask. Fatigue occurs and the rate cannot be maintained. So somebody breathing that fast is going to get tired and that's why we're going to have to um, ventilate for them. The rate is too fast to allow adequate tidal volume. Remember, we should be breathing in 500 milliliters of air or 5 liters of air with every breath. Respiratory quality can be normal, shallow, labored using accessory muscles and noisy. Respiratory rhythm is the regular regularity or irregularity of respirations. Remember I told you the rhythm in the last chapter where you have a steady rhythm and an irregular rhythm. Respiratory rhythm Cheyenne Stokes biot, apneustic, ataxic, agonal, kusmol, and central neurogenic hyperventilation. So we want to look at the notes here, because I'm almost positive that it's going to give us the difference in each one. Okay, so we have, um, let me uh, maximize this so you can see it, Cheyenne, Cheyenne or Shine Stokes, Stokes, Cheyenne Stokes, however you want to say it. The respiratory rate and tidal volume gradually increases and gradually decreases, followed by a period of apnea for up to 10 seconds, so apnea is no breathing. The patient, uh, excuse me, the pattern then repeats itself. Biot is similar to uh, Cheyenne Stokes, except that the tidal volume doesn't change, but the respiratory pattern is interrupted by a period of apnea. Apneustic is characterized by prolonged periods of inhalation. Ataxic is an irregularity, irregularly irregular pattern of rate and tidal volume. Agonal, long periods of apnea with a gasping breath interposed. Agonal breathing is not normal breathing. Kussmaul is rapid respiratory rate with a deep and labored tidal volume. Rapid respiratory rate with a deep and labored tidal volume. Central neurogenic hyperventilation is a sustained deep and rapid respiratory rate of at least 25 breaths per minute, but with a regular pattern. All right. So here are some noisy respirations for you. You see uh, on the left, you see sounds audible with, without a stethoscope, snoring, gurgling, strider, or crowing. Uh, you can also hear wheezing audibly without a stethoscope if it's in the upper airway. Um, and then you have your potential causes on the right. Sounds audible with a stethoscope, wheezing, crackles, and ronchi. You can uh, look on the right and see what the potential causes are. You need to study these tables. The location of a pulse. Pressure wa- a pulse is a pressure wave generated by the contraction of the left ventricle. So when the left ventricle contracts and pumps the blood through the body, it generates a pulse wave or pressure wave throughout the body in the arteries and gives you a pulse it directly affects um, excuse me it directly reflex heart function the location of your pulses are going to be uh carotid femoral brachial popliteal posterior tibial and dorsalis pedis that uh carotid is going to be found on both sides of the trachea in the neck the femoral is going to be found on the inter and in, inner not inter uh, inner thigh, uh, in the groin area from oral artery. You need to go back and review your anatomy. The brachial artery is found, uh, between the shoulder and the elbow on the inside underneath the, uh, the bicep muscle. Uh, it's where we check a pulse on an infant, brachial pulse. Popliteal is going to be, uh, behind the, uh, the ankle area and the posterior tibial is going to be behind the knee. And the dorsalis pedis is going to be on top of the foot. And we will go over each location in class when we do skills. Uh, if a patient is one year or older, you need to check the radial pulse. Uh, one year or older without a peripheral pulse, check the carotid pulse. So if they don't have a radial pulse or uh, uh, pedal pulse or popliteal or posterior tibial then we need to go to the central pulse which would be the carotid and the femoral uh, less than a year check the brachial pulse just because that artery is a little bit bigger assess the pulse rate quality and rhythm the radial pulse is assessed in the patients older than one year age and there you go you will have to time yourself You checking a manual radial pulse by your county. There you go, checking the pulse in an infant, yes, less than a year old in that brachial pulse. Assess the carotid. We're going to put our two fingers on the trachea and move over one inch towards us, whatever side of the body we are on. Move over one inch and depress into the neck. We should feel that carotid pulse. Heart rate for adults, the average range is 60 to 80 beats per minute resting. That means they are not doing anything. They are sitting and relaxing. Infants and children, heart rates are faster. Tachycardia is a heart rate of greater than 100 beats, 100, greater than 100 beats per minute. Bradycardia is a heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute. Interpret findings based on the patient's overall presentation. What that means is uh, see what see what else is going on to judge your heart rate. If they're having chest pains and their pain scale is high and their blood pressure is high, they might have a high heart rate. It's still not good, but it's normal for what they're feeling um, and so forth. Here are your normal pulse rates for um, your age groups. Notice uh, the younger the patient, the higher the heart rate, so don't freak out. To obtain the heart rate, palpate the pulse with the tips of two or three fingers. Do not use your thumb. Your thumb can contain a heart rate, a uh, tone heart rate, um, so you don't want to get a false reading. So use your 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 pointer finger and your middle finger, and maybe your ring finger if you need three fingers. Count the beats in 30 seconds and multiply by two. That's fine. You can also count the beats in 10 seconds and multiply by six. I don't care how you do it as long as you get a good minute volume, or excuse me, a minute rate. pulse quality and rhythm remember to record the pulse quality was it a strong pulse was it a weak pulse was it a regular pulse or irregular and here on the left you see the pulse it's rapid regular and full rapid regular and thready slow no pulse and it gives you the possible problems so you can look on the right and look and study this table it's in your textbook as well chapter eleven uh... you need to study these and uh... make sure you uh... understand what whenever you feel when you palpate the pulse whatever uh, is going on you understand what the possible problems can be you can read your adults i'm not going to read this for you okay click on any heart rate that would be outside the normal range for an eight-year-old child any heart rate if you clicked 56 you are correct this heart rate is outside the expected range for a child who is from 5 to 12 years old if you click 76 we're incorrect let's see if 130 i think 130 is going to be incorrect as well that might be correct correct the heart rate is outside the expected range for a child who is from 5 to 12 years old and 116 is going to be our normal heart rate normal so 56 and 130 and 76, they said, is it normal? So for a child, eight, uh, eight-year-old child, 116 and 76 are normal. 56 is too low. 130 is too high. All right. Skin. Assess the appearance of the skin, uh, of the condition of the skin, looking for color, temperature, condition, and capillary refill. I know we should not de-glove, but sometimes we have to um, expose our, the back of our hand a little bit to get a uh, correct temperature. Um, so we want to pull the back, pull our glove down the back on the back of our hand, and place the back of our hand on the person's skin. It says right here on the belly. Um, not all your patients are going to be laying down, and not all your patients are going to be cool with you lifting up their shirt unless they're unresponsive, feeling a skin condition. So you may use it. You may do it on the uh, arms as well. Assessing the capillary refill in infants and children. Plus, press on the nail, on the nail bed or the skin. Um, When you depress and you let go, you should have a a refill no no more than two to three seconds. Uh, It's not really a good uh, idea to use this in adults. um, Just because as we get older, our circulation uh, gets worse. (laughs) So it might freak us out a little bit. Skin color, check the color of the nail beds, oral mucosa, and conjunctiva for cyanosis. Pink is normal. Paleness or pallor is uh, is obviously abnormal. Blue, gray color or cyanosis uh, in those areas I told you about. Red color or flushing is always uh, an abnormal sign. Yellow color or jaundice, and then mottling. Mottling is a uh, what looks like those little patches of red or splotches of red all over the skin. Uh, Skin temperature. Lift the patient's shirt and place the back of your bare hand on the abdominal skin. Like I said, not all patients are going to be cool with you lifting up their shirt and checking their abdomen if they're awake. If they're unconscious, then okay. But uh, you can just do it on their arm as well. Hot may indicate a fever or exposure to heat. Cool may be a sign of inadequate circulation, shock, or exposure to cold. Cold indicates extreme exposures to cold. Uh, Normally, skin is dry, normally. So moist skin may indicate shock, poisoning, heat-related, cardiac or diabetic emergency, or many other conditions. Skin that is both cool and moist is often described as clammy. Diaphoresis is the term used to describe profuse sweating. Skin that is abnormally dry may be a sign of spinal injury or severe dehydration. Capillary refill, the time it takes for compressed capillaries to fill up again with blood. The upper limits of normal capillary refill times are two seconds for infants, children, and male adults. Three seconds for females and four seconds for the elderly. Here's the table for skin color, temperature, and condition. So on the left, it tells you the color, temperature, and condition. Possible problems on the right. You need to look at these uh, tables and make yourself familiar. Pupils. When assessing for pupillary reaction, use only a pin light, not an extremely bright flashlight. Check the pupils for size, equality, and reactivity to light. Whenever a pupil is exposed to light, it should constrict and get smaller. When it's exposed to darkness, it will dilate. So whenever you hit it with a pin light, if it doesn't constrict or move, then you know you have a problem. Pupils should be the same size. Both of them should be the same size. At the top you see constricted pupils. The middle is dilated pupils, and the bottom is unequal pupils. Pupils are a telltale sign of head injury. Again, eleven table eleven six pupil size equality and reactivity. You need to look at these. Become familiar. A lot of different conditions can be going on here. Blood pressure. Blood pressure is the force of blood against arterial walls. Systolic blood pressure is the higher pressure present during contraction of the left ventricle. Diastolic blood pressure reflects vascular resistance and blood volume. It is the pressure present during relaxation of the left ventricle. There are your normal blood pressures. This is the only one where the numbers are greater as the patient gets older. And the younger the patient, the uh, lower the numbers. Hypotension by age, if you look at the different age groups, and you can see um, hypotension, hypo meaning low, low blood pressure. Um, Hypotension meaning low blood pressure. Um, You can look at the, uh, the, the systolic numbers here. Okay, and that will tell you hypotensive patients. The difference between systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure is the pulse pressure. Pulse pressure should be between twenty-five percent and fifty percent of the systolic blood pressure. Low blood pressure is an indicate indicator of hypoperfusion. High blood pressure can damage the heart and vessels. Take a blood pressure in all three patients in all patients three years and older the methods for measuring blood pressure um, the two methods are oscillation this is gonna be doing with a uh, sphygmomanometer. Sphy-mo- manometer manometer say that five times fast um, oscillation is listening for the systolic and diastolic sounds through a stethoscope and the palpation is feeling for the return of pulse as the cup is deflated And here's the oscillation blood pressure skill. Put on the cuff. Palpate the brachial artery. Find out where it is. Place your stethoscope in place where the brachial artery is. And pump up your cuff until you have no more pulse. Once you do that, you release. And when you hear the first sound, then you're going to... Here, that is your top number, your systolic number, and the last sound, uh, the last sound you hear is going to be your diastolic number. And we will practice this way more in class. This is not a, uh, this is not a a good um, practice for taking diastolic. I mean, excuse me, a blood, proper blood pressure. Taking blood pressure by palpation, we're going to apply the cuff again, no stethoscope. We're going to feel for that radial pulse going to pump up that uh, blood pressure cuff until we do not feel a radial pulse. Once we do not feel a radial pulse, then we will release the air from the blood pressure cuff. And then as soon as we hear, um, as soon as we feel a radial pulse, whatever number the needle is on, on the sphygmomanometer, then uh, that is our systolic number. We can only get a systolic number. We cannot get a diastolic number on palpation. Orthostatic vital signs uh, are assessed in patients with suspected volume loss, blood volume, or, or if they've had diarrhea or vomiting, stuff like that. Uh, we're going to take a blood pressure and a pulse with the patient's supine, then two minutes after standing. So we're going to take them while they're laying down, and then two minutes later after they're standing up. If the heart rate increases over 10 to 20 beats per minute and the systolic blood pressure decreases by... to 20 millimeters of mercury a significant loss of blood or fluid volume is indicated vital sign reassessment if the patient is stable vital signs should be taken and recorded at least every 15 minutes and as often as necessary to ensure proper care take and record vital signs every five minutes if the patient is unstable here's orthostatic getting that heart rate and blood pressure while they are laying in the supine. Have them stay in, wait two minutes, and then see if the heart rate increases and the blood pressure blood pressure decreases to see if there's an, an adequate, or an, an, uh, indicating inadequate blood volume or fluid volume. Pulse oximeter or oxygen saturation assessment. Pulse oximeter detects hypoxia by measuring oxygen saturation levels in the blood's hemoglobin. A normal SpO2 is 97 to 100 percent. An SpO2 94 uh, percent, less than 94 percent, indicates hypoxia. An SpO2 of less than 90 indicates severe hypoxia. So our goal in this class is 94 percent or greater. 94 percent or greater. That's what we're going to be looking for. Pulse oximetry. Take that little uh, finger uh I want to say doohickey here, that little finger clamp, and put it on their finger. The red light should be on the pad of their uh, finger, and then it'll it'll detect here. It's going to give you a heart rate, usually oxygen sat right here, and a heart rate as well. That's what it looks like, placed on a patient's finger. So what you're probably going to see hooked to most of your um, your monitors on the truck. There's the finger sized one where it's just a little clamp and it shows you it's got a little screen on the top. Indications for pulse oximetry. You want to apply whenever the patient's oxygen status is a concern or when hypoxia is suspected. Uh, The pulse oximeter reading is a vital sign. It should be a standard measure in patients along with respirations, pulse, skin, pupils, and blood pressure. So whenever you start doing your patient assessments, you will be getting a pulse ox every time. Limitations of the pulse oximeter. Any condition that interferes with the blood flowing to the area where the probe is attached may produce an erroneous reading, like we don't want to put it on the same arm or the same finger where the blood pressure is being taken because we're going to be cutting off the blood flow there um, several times taking the blood pressures. Or if there's like um, a tourniquet or some kind of uh, hindrance of bleeding or hemorrhage or anything like that, we don't want to put it on that extremity. If the pulse rate shown on the pulse oximeter does not correspond with the patient's actual pulse rate, the one you take manually, the pulse oximeter is also not accurately reading the blood flow and oxygen saturation. So you need to assess that patient by palpating a heart rate and then... Um, If you look at your pulse ox and it's off, your batteries may be low or your equipment may be broken. All right, readings may be inaccurate during shock, hypothermia, excessive patient movement, nail polish, carbon monoxide exposure, and anemia. Procedure for determining the SpO2 reading. Connect the, S- connect the sensor to the SpO2 monitor. Attach the probe to the fingertip or the toe or distal foot of an infant. Uh, turn, the device, turn on the device and match the pulse reading on the monitor with the patient's, rec- uh, patient's record SpO2. Or patient. Excuse me. Turn on the device and match the pulse reading on the monitor with the patient's and record the SpO2. Reassess every 5 minutes in an unstable patient and every 15 minutes in the stable patient. Non-invasive blood pressure monitor, it can be set to reassess the blood pressure at selected intervals or can be activated manually. Alarms can signal pressures that exceed or fall below set upper and lower limits. The procedure for non-invasive blood pressure monitoring is going to explain the procedures to the patient. Always obtain the first blood pressure by reading the oscillation. Uh, Excuse me, always obtain the first blood pressure reading by The oscillation and then apply and position the properly sized cuff. Activate the device after the cuff deflates, a systolic and diastolic blood pressure reading will be displayed. And there you go, you can buy them at a drugstore or you non invasive is going to be uh, using your life packs as well on the trucks. All right, in title CO2 capnometry. In tidal carbon dioxide, monitoring is a non-invasive method of measuring the level of carbon dioxide at the end of an exhaled breath. ETCO2, the measurement of, measurement of CO2 at the end of expiration. Uh, PACO2 is the partial pressure of CO2 in the arterial blood. Capnometry is the measurement of expired CO2. A capnogram is the visual recording of the CO2 waveform throughout the phases of breathing. Your, your life packs will have those. You can put an end title on nasal cannula. Uh, It's actually a nasal cannula that that has an end title built in, and you can also put an end title on your uh, BVMs as well. Um, It's a good idea to do so because you need to be able to measure uh, CO2 if you can as it exits the body. The reasons for etCO2 changes: the reading will decrease during hyperventilation, and the reading will increase uh, during hypoventilation. The reading will decrease with a decrease in cardiac output, uh, blood flow, or pulmonary capillary perfusion, or a decline in metabolic activity. So, the decrease in ETCO2, so the decrease in carbon dioxide coming out, uh, with is going to be with a decrease in cardiac output, uh, blood flow, or pulmonary capillary perfusion. So, um, if you see this, if you see a decrease in, in ETCO2, then you, you know there's possibly something going on with the heart okay, or blood flow, or perfusion, okay, um, and the, the reading will increase with an improvement in alveolar ventilation, so uh, we want to see uh, a reading of probably between 35 and 55, and that's a big jump, but um, we need to see, you know, ETCO2 by 35 to 55, then we kind of know everything is uh, operating uh, okay. A sudden increase in ETCO2 reading in the cardiac arrest patient may indicate the patient has regained a pulse. That's a good thing. ETCO2 is used to confirm and monitor correct endotracheal tube placement. A decrease in the level indicates a displaced endotracheal tube. That is a paramedic skill that you, if you ever go to paramedic school, you will learn and become familiar with. ETCO2 is used to monitor the effectiveness of chest compressions. Um, Because when we compress the chest, we compress the lungs, and we want to try to expel that CO2. A decrease in ETCO2 level and reading usually indicates compressor fatigue. Oh, so there we go. We can tell when you're getting tired just by looking at the ETCO2. All right, case study. Mr. Mahone reports that he began feeling some pressure in his chest about 15 minutes ago. Bill organizes several questions in his mind as Dawn obtains respiratory and pulse rates, a blood pressure, and a pulse oximetry reading. Meanwhile, Bill can see that Mr. Mahone's skin is slightly pale and cool and moist to the touch. What are the normal ranges of vital signs for this patient? Given the patient's complaint, what questions should Bill be prepared to ask? Again, I encourage you to pause write these questions down so that you can answer them as we go along all right preparing to take a history we must learn how to take a patient history it's going to help us develop clues evidence gain control of the scene when you get there, you have a medical patient, trauma patient, that is your scene. You must display competence, confidence, and compassion. Achieve a smooth transition of care uh, from an emergency medical responder, which is a lower-level uh, trained, trained EMS professional than you, the police officer or other individual who is providing first aid. Quickly gain information from the EMR before you make an actual patient contact. You need to reduce the patient's anxiety, bring order to the environment, introduce yourself, gain patient consent, position yourself, use communication skills, be courteous, use touch when appropriate. If you don't do any of these things during your assessments in class, I will make you start over. I'm not trying to be mean, just trying to make you better. Maintain control. Recognize when a scene cannot be controlled and do not jeopardize your own safety. I cannot stress that enough. Do not jeopardize your own safety. If necessary, remove yourself and the patient from the scene. Yourself first and your partner, then your patient if you can. Taking a history. The history begins with the reason why EMS was called, which is the chief complaint. The history Helps guide the examination. The process must be dynamic for the situation. You get a history from the patient if possible. If not, you can ask a bystander or a family or a friend uh, if they're available. After the chief complaint, you need to determine the history of the present illness. What's going on with them right now? We don't want to talk about gout flare-up from six months ago. We want to talk about what's going on right now. That's good to know that they have gout because it could be an underlying cause, but that specific event happened and it's over with. Now we need to know what's going on now. So statistical and demographic information. We need to know the date it is, the time, and the patient's identifying data. That is going to be for your report. You say I treated a patient, male patient, don't know how old they were, don't know their name, date of birth, address, any any of that stuff your your company's probably gonna look at you like who did we hire okay current health status what medications are they taking are there any allergies to medications or anything else are they using tobacco are they using alcohol drugs or related substances what's their diet like recent screening tests immunizations environmental hazards use of safety equipment and a family history Some techniques you can use for taking patient history is take notes document the information the patient provides as accurately as possible types of questions open-ended questions can yield more information so uh if you say have you had a heart attack and they're going to say yes that's a closed-end question because they're only going to give you one answer say uh, you know you could say have you had a heart attack Yes, closing question, how many and when? Then they can give you all that information. Active listening, facilitate the patient. Uh, it, that's, that's their environment. You need to be part of that environment. Make yourself part of that environment. Um, so facilitate, help them along with their answers. Um, help them reflect on things like, yeah, I had a heart attack a year ago. Well, okay, well, what happened during that event? And let me know who your doctor is and that sort of thing. Or fact, and in clarification ask clarifying questions it's okay to ask the same question uh three four five times if it's going to help you clarify that's okay it's not you're not going to get fired for that you may aggravate the patient a little bit but you know the better you know the information the better for your patient empathetic response you may not be able to sympathize with the patient because um, his condition may not be may have never happened to you but you can empathize with them um confrontation um you know don't let your patients run over you you got to say look you know i need to know this information better for me to help uh help you out and interpretation uh your patients are not always going to talk medical jargon to you so you're going to have to understand when you refer to a heart attack as an mi then they're not they're going to refer to it as a heart attack okay so you need to know the difference be able to interpret what they're talking about All right, the sample history. Sample is a mnemonic, S-A-M-P-L-E. It stands for signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, pertinent past history, last oral intake, and events leading up to the illness or injury. You need to remember sample, like your favorite song lyric. You must remember sample. I will give you some uh, questions to uh, ask for each one of these uh, letters, sample, and that will help you get your assessment along. Okay, also OPQRST, onset, provocation, quality, radiation, severity, and time. I will also give you some certain questions to ask during uh, this history taken for OPQRST. Uh, but you need to remember sample and OPQRST like your favorite song lyric because this is your bread and butter for history taken. Sensitive topics. When asking sensitive questions, remain non-judgmental and ask only questions that pertain directly to the medical history or patient care. Don't be talking about their dog. Okay? Unless your dog bit them. But if you didn't, leave the dog out of it. Respect the patient's privacy. People's going to start gathering, especially if they see your ambulance out front. People might start walking down the street trying to find out what's going on. Respect their privacy. Ask at appropriate time and location. If a patient's been involved in a rape or an assault or something like that, you might not want to ask certain questions in front of everybody. Wait until you're in the back of the truck alone. That way you, you know, they may be more uh, willing to talk to you. Remain within your scope of practice. Do not do anything unless you have been trained to do it. Um, you're going to get sued. You're going to get fired. You're going to lose your job. You know, depending on the severity, you may even do some jail time, so... Um, like I said, you need to uh, remain within your scope of practice. Special challenges when dealing with patients are silence. If you get some hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic patients may not talk to you uh, just because their their mental status is altered. Overly talkative patients. I mean, you've all dealt with overly talkative people before. Patients with multiple symptoms. You know, I mean, may be the case you know you may have multiple things going on with one patient anxious patients i can uh i'll show you i'll i'll do some scenarios with you where i exhibit some anxiety as a patient angry patients intoxication crying patients a depressed patient confused behavior or history patients with limited intelligence a language barrier Hearing impairment, visual impairment, talking with friends or family. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to talk to their mom and dad or brother or sister. Pediatrics and elderly. They're they're special individuals. Pediatrics, you don't you don't want to take them away from their parents because uh, their their parent may be able to calm them down better than you. Uh, you know all that stranger danger stuff. And then elderly patients. Um, they're they're very prideful. They they think that they should be helping you instead of you helping them. Okay, it's the way they operate. All right, Bill learns that Mr. Mahone's chest discomfort started 15 minutes ago while he was working on his computer. Nothing has made his discomfort, be- discomfort better or worse. Mr. Mahone describes the sensation as a heavy pressure and says he can feel the sensation in his left so- shoulder and arm. When Bill asks, Mr. Mahone says the severity of the discomfort is a 7 on a scale of from 1 to 10. Mr. Mahone's vital signs are as follows. Respiration 16 per minute and of normal death. Pulse is strong but occasionally irregular at 84 beats per minute. The blood pressure is 132 over 90 and an SpO2 is 99% on room air. Based on the history, Bill suspects acute coronary syndrome. He administers aspirin and nitroglycerin to Mr. Mahone according to protocol as they prepare to transport him to the hospital. All right. You will take vital signs on every patient you encounter baseline vital signs allow comparison with later vital signs to detect trends vital signs include respirations pulse blood pressure skin pupils and pulse oximetry a medical history is important in determining the patient's condition and the care needed you must be prepared to overcome many challenges in history taking it's an important chapter folks i encourage you to study it know it Because we will see it many, many, many times throughout this class. See you next time.